Well, good morning. You know, this, this year we're going to be celebrating the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. And to be sure, it's, uh, uh, the day that we, we celebrate it will be October the 31st, 2017. And it's really becoming a kind of big deal around the globe. Bruce Gordon, um, in the December 30th edition of, of, of Christianity Today, says this about it. There are so many events planned to mark the Protestant Reformation's 500th anniversary that sometimes it's hard to keep track. Fresh conversations have been sparked in churches, the press, the seminar rooms. Wittenberg and other Reformation sites in Germany have been beautifully restored, yes, and even Disney-fied. Well, to be sure, it's taking on quite a populist sort of, uh, of movement. As well, we find ourselves in the midst of an avalanche of new biographies of the great reformers published with both popular and scholarly uh, presses. Biographies on, say, Luther appear just about everywhere right now, on John Calvin and the many others. And, of course, there are going to be the embellishments and the demythologizing of all the myths, not least of which is the fact that the very date that occasions the 500-year commemoration on October 31st is based on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther supposedly nailed his famous 95 theses to the chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, most uh, historians now believe that probably didn't happen, but it's a good story. And, um, and it's a story worth remembering, because if nothing else, it, as a myth, does get to something of the rebellion and something of the intensity uh, of that movement. But, of course, uh, for those of us who are spiritual descendants of the Reformation, well, more than a festival or carnival, more than myths, true or false, it begs some questions. In our present context of the demise in Western Christianity, is there anything we can learn from the 16th century Reformation that would assist in the revitalization of Christianity and that's so sorely needed in this city and in our region here in southern New England? but even in whole of Western Christendom itself. I mean, what convictions might need to be revisited and not taken for granted? What practices, even approaches to doing Christianity, need to be reintroduced, both personally and corporately, albeit adapted into our own world? Well, as I have reflected on these questions, I can think of no better method of discernment than to revisit The five solas. Solas in Latin meaning alone or only. That is, the five solas collectively, they served as the foundational principles of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Sola Deo Gloria, To God alone be glory. Now, to be sure, the vital word in all of this is alone, sola. It's not uncommon in all brands of Christianity for there to be those five other words. What is unique about the Reformation and all subsequent and previous Reformations, because there have been many, is this return to sola, 
I mean, it's true that all five together were never cataloged by any of the 16th century reformers. In fact, it was not until probably the 20th century where they were published, all five together in this collective entirety as representing sort of the reformational corpus or focus. All of the solas, however, show up frequently in various writings by the Protestant reformers, again, if not all cataloged together, used intermittently often. Now today, then, we begin our series on five solas of the Reformation by focusing on probably the most foundational of all the solas, at least in terms of the movement that it drove, and that is the sola scriptura. Now, sola scriptura is certainly a conviction about Scripture that it is our only rule of faith and practice. You're going to find that language, by the way, all the way back into the second century and the Reformation that took place around the formation of a creed of the Trinitarian nature of God. But this idea of the only rule of faith and practice will become a central motif and mantra, if you will, of the 16th century Reformation that we'll be celebrating as well. Now, to be sure, I want you to make it clear, I want to make it clear, though, that it's not just then a conviction. So therefore, when you look at the movements and when you understand Sola Scriptura, it's, it's a way of doing Christianity. Certainly informed by the convictions that we have about Scripture. But it's informed then by our practices and our spirituality. And that's the thing that really stands out. Now, let me just illustrate, though, for a brief moment, how it is that that this idea of sola scriptura, well, this wasn't some new idea to the Reformers. In fact, you can go again all the way back to early church history and how this idea, sola scriptura, drove church history in all of its major reformations. We are taken back, for instance, to the conviction that in church history emerged in the early 3rd century during the Trinitarian controversy. Arius was arguably the most notorious heretic of the early church, And through Arius, heretical views were soundly condemned by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. The controversy that that he sparked raged for another 50 years or so throughout the Roman Empire. And during those tumultuous decades, the defenders of Trinitarian orthodoxy often found themselves outnumbered and out of favor with the imperial court and under great persecution and suffering for their views. And yet... They would refuse to compromise. Among them, most famously, stood Athanasius of Alexandria, exiled on five different occasions for his unwavering commitment to the truth. He was joined by the Cappadocian fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nanzenzes, and the Gregory of Nyssa. And what did all of these men share in common? Sola Scriptura. This unwavering conviction that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments was their only rule of faith and practice, is what undergirded not only their convictions, but their courage to hold fast to Trinitarian theology. Theology that we often assume today if you're in a Christendom environment. But here, viewed as heretical by many of the establishment church of that day. And they defended the truth by appealing then to the scriptures. Gregory of Nyssa makes this point explicitly in in a great letter. 
the Arians had claimed that their tradition or their custom and the, and the authority of the church of that day did not allow for the Trinitarian position. And Gregory responded with these following words. He says, quote, We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and the rule of sound doctrine. I mean, just stop there. The prevailing custom. Sometimes it can come through an establishment church. Sometimes, as Nathan Hatch has argued about the American context of religion that's anti-establishment and anti-organization from its almost very inception, but what replaces that authority is the populism. What he described as the democratization of American Christianity. However the custom comes, to contrary it is to suffer. Not only popularity, but perks and privileges, prestige and power, all of this. And so here we have yet another of our brothers, our forefathers, a father of our faith. We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and the rule of sound doctrine. Oh, might we need to revisit that spirituality when we think of Christianity and how we evaluate it when we evaluate it based on populism and what makes media attention? For he goes on, if custom is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom, and if they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow theirs. However, let the inspired scripture then be our umpire, and the vote of truth and surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. I have quotes, as many of you know, my custom when I write sermons is to write a half a book sometimes, just so that I have them in the But right here, and I won't read it, I have quotes from Arrhenius of Lyons in 202 A.D., Tertullian of Carthage in, one, in around the mid-3rd century A.D., Hippolytus, Eusebius of Caesarea, Athanasius of Alexandria, Cyril of Jerusalem, John Christendom, Augustine of Hippo, and the list could go on and on. Those who explicitly and dogmatically, you might say, pushed against the prevailing popular culture, given the courage of sola scriptura. Now, clearly the doctrine of sola scriptura then, and I want to make this clear, as all these doctrines that we'll study was championed by Christians long before the Reformation. But however, the conviction did again emerge during the medieval era as the first ray of light through the teachings and ministries of one John Wycliffe. He was ministering in the 1300s. Think about that. 200 years before the Reformation. John Wycliffe is appropriately referred to, though, as the morning star of the Reformation. And at the core of his life and ministry, and the rediscovery of the gospel, much like the rediscovery that, that Martin Luther would, would have in his own rediscovery of Sola Scriptura, at the heart of it was this doctrine of Sola Scriptura, or this spirituality, I should say. Born in 1325 at, at, at near Richmond in Yorkshire, John Wycliffe lived some 200 again years before those whom we regard as Protestant reformers, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin. But the movement he reformed that Wycliffe began, and more particularly his own experience of the power of the Word of God, leading him to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, 
His words, literally, and his life would inspire even the courage of John Huss a hundred years before the Reformation. And then later, the very words of Wycliffe would inspire Martin Luther and Calvin and many others. You see, this great morning star, Wycliffe, is often associated with, yet again, the pre-Reformational discovery and a movement that ensued of Sola Scriptura. Now, concerning the state of the church in England during his days, it's pretty difficult for us in the 20th century to, or 21st century, to really appreciate the, the darkness and the ignorance which permeated the medieval church. The church had departed from the simplicity of doctrine and worship, which had characterized the apostolic and primitive age. About that time, the preface to the book of, of common worship and the preface that asserts this about that earlier time, it says, quote, the multitude of ceremonies was so great and many of them so dark that they did more to confound and darken than to declare, to declare and set forth Christ's benefits unto us. The spiritual aspect of religion in this Christendom mentality had become largely obscured as medieval Christianity had lended to become almost exclusively sacerdotal. What I mean by that is ceremonial. The clergy had virtually ceased to exercise a true ministry of reasoning from Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we would hopefully think of it today in its more orthodox forms. The doctrine of transubstantiation, the corrupt penitential system, indulgences, pilgrimages, invocations of saints, and the worldliness of then the monastic life even, which marked the church, and the gross superstition that, that came around all of this ceremony. Well, this was all in due measure because there was almost an entire ignorance of the Word of God. Taken for granted that we all believe it. Taken for granted that we all know it. There was an ignorance. Enter then the ministry of John Wycliffe and his conviction that the Bible should be the sole authority of all of life. He wrote these words, Holy Scripture is the preeminent authority for every Christian in the rule of faith and of all human perfection. Something he discovered in his own crisis as a minister of the gospel, later in his years even. He goes on to say this, For as much as the Bible contains Christ, that is all that is necessary. Hear that sola? Hear that only concept coming out over and over here? It's all that is necessary for our salvation. It is necessary for all people, not for priests alone. It alone, there it is again, alone is the supreme law that is to rule church, state, Christian life without human traditions or statutes. This conviction for the scripture led to a seriousness of practice pertaining to it as it often does, it always will. Sola Scriptura, again, is not just a conviction, it's a way of doing Christianity. Therefore, he spent much time thinking about and writing about how we're to read and understand the Bible. He said this, his rules, his five rules, if you'll obtain a reliable text, understand the logic of Scripture, compare the parts of Scripture with one another, that is, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, maintain an attitude of humble seeking and receive the instruction by the illumination of the Spirit. I find these rules amazing. Any of you who are knowledgeable about the exegetical history and it's just amazing in the 1300s how he was foreshadowing the, the exact same ideas that would be practiced in the Reformation. 
and be codified in our own confession even. Perhaps most novel for his day, Wycliffe left that the, uh, felt that the lady should, not, should no, not just know the basics of the faith, but they should know it with the understanding and the reasoning from Scripture. And they could best know the Bible when it was in their own language. He argued this, that it is certain that the truth of this Christian faith becomes more evident the more the faith itself is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but also in the common tongue. And as the faith of the church is contained in the scriptures, the more these are known in the true sense, the better, writes John Wycliffe. He goes on to describe how Christ and the apostles brought to them the eternal and, and languageless, if you will, word of God from heaven into the words of the common vernacular in the New Testament. Many of you may not know, but the Koinea Greek, which is the Greek that the Scripture is written in, at least part of it in the New Testament, is a common form of Greek. And so it's amazing how this principle begins to emerge. It is to John Wycliffe that we owe, then, this first translation of the Bible into English in 1384. But his sola scriptura led also to a new kind of ministry born out of his own scripturally informed rediscovery of the gospel of grace and by faith alone, sounding almost identical to the reformers that we'll study later, and identical to John Hoos, who was martyred a hundred years later for the very same principle. He says the gospel alone, there it is, alone again, is sufficient to rule the lives of Christians everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conduct adds nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, we ought trust wholly in Christ, rely together on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is efficient for salvation, he said. There must be atonement made for sin according to his righteousness of God. The person to make this atonement must be God and not man. Wow. I think I'm reading Calvin right now. Or Martin Luther. 200 years earlier in England. Now, what am I saying this for? I'm saying this because as we turn to the Scripture today, I want us to understand sola scriptura, not just as a conviction. I've said it now about four times. I may say it more four more times. But as a, a way of doing Christianity. And the manner in which sola scriptura precedes all the other solas and the way that we experience the gospel itself. But especially we would want to know that, that such a view and something we desperately need in this congregation and in our context today that has its own medieval-esque characteristics in populist forms, we need to really discover the courage that Sola Scriptura produced. Wycliffe said, I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. Now John Wycliffe, he would never die. But those who followed after his teachings, many of them would. John Wycliffe influenced Blining, Bilney, I'm sorry, Tyndale, Frith, Latimer and these men and others with them had all come out of darkness to God's marvelous light through the sola scriptura and the rediscovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The grace of God in Christ had met them and found them, and except for John Wilgiff, they all were martyred. All were martyred for the word of God and their testimony. So goes Sola Scriptura, so goes the gospel, you see. And so goes the power that drove all the major reformational and revitalization movements in church history. That's the point I've wanted to make. But now I need to make the most important point. It is the doctrine. It is the way of life that drove the beginning of the church in the New Testament. And to illustrate this, I want to take us then to Acts chapter 17. We've heard it read. Let us pray very briefly, and then I'm going to point out a few things. Father, we need your help now. We need your help as we come to your scripture. We need your help as we seek to really listen to it. And that you would perhaps initiate and spark a a revitalization, a a reformation in this room. Seriously, Lord, could we ask something so big of that? That we would not be presumptuous? That we had it and that we don't need it? Lord, convict us. Please, convict us. Expose to us ourselves and enable us, Lord, to see the freedom that awaits us in Christ, even through the Holy Scriptures. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be quite brief just to point out some things uh, from Acts that I think really helps us understand the spirituality of Sola Scriptura. And what I want to point out particularly is that as we're in the context of Acts, and we're in the context of the birth of the New Covenant Church through the ministry of Paul, you see here very carefully and intentionally a description of a a two-fold strategy that are interrelated to one another in Acts 17. In other words, in telling the story of Paul's church planning journey to Thessalonica and to the Thessalonica and then to Berea, Luke is very brief here. He he doesn't mix words, but but within the brevity there's this clarity of emphasis on the use of scripture with contrary responses to it and the manner in which it birthed the church. And again, it's the attitude to the scripture adopted by both the hearers and the speakers that is chronicled here in Acts 17 that is especially noteworthy by Luke. And so look at what he says briefly. Two things that I want to point out to you. First of all, and they were both they were common in both Thessalonica and in Berea, these two new churches in their formations. First is the strategy to the Jews first. Now maybe you've heard that before. Paul even recites it in Romans chapter 1 where it's He talks about the Gospels presented there for the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. To be sure, we wonder, what's the deal with that, Paul? Why are you going to the Jews first? But clearly it's true. In verse 1, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. Telling you that was a clear strategy of ministry for Paul. That when he went into a city, he looked up the Jewish synagogue first, and he went there. He does the same thing in Acts 17.10 to Berea. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea, and when they arrived, he went first to the Jewish synagogue. What's going on there, as is his custom? This pattern that we see over and over. We see it in Acts chapter 13, and you can just keep going backwards to the same pattern. Notice what they did there. Verse 5, it says, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews in Thessalonica. 
This is interesting because it's the same language that shows up in Berea and in the other places. He describes this in Romans chapter 9. How the Jews in the synagogue, he believed that they contained the holy scriptures. He calls them the promises and the oracles of God. That when he went into a city, he wanted to engage those scriptures with the city. And what better place to do that than the Jewish synagogue, who, who held to them, who, who presumably prized them and cherished them as their most sacred possession, the Torah. And so he would go there, and he would do exactly what he said he would do, which is he would proclaim not his own wisdom, by the power of his own personality, he talks about to Corinthians, but he proclaimed nothing save Christ and him crucified, from the word of God. Well, this is significant. Notice why. Because here we have this pattern of going to the Jews first, which then begins to expose itself and its meaning in the second observation that I'll give you. And that's the observation that there was a strategy. This strategy to the Jews first was linked to what we are here now describing as sola scriptura. That is that the true faith must also be reasoned. It must be reasoned as from the context of Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. And the key word again is only. That comes up in Paul's ministry all over the place. Such that sola scriptura is discovered as more than a conviction but a way of doing Christianity. Have you heard that before? Laugh, laugh. All right, I got you to laugh. I mean, there it is. Notice more carefully Acts 17. Now when they had passed through it, the blah, 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 I'm going to skip on verse 2. And he went in and as was his custom... On three Sabbath days, he what? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the scripturally defined Messiah or Christ. Now, what does this word mean in the Greek? He reasoned with them. Some of your translations might even be, he preached with them. But it's interesting because they're both true. The word could be translated formally address them as in a formal rhetorical exercise. In this case, sacred rhetoric. Uh, the, uh, the title of a great book that John, uh, Robert Dabney once wrote about preaching, actually in the 19th century, but he formally addressed or preached, if you could say, from the scriptures. And yet, the word itself exposes what a sermon is. Some would say that a sermon is presenting the facts of Christ and the gospel. What we call in classical terms, trivium. Not a derogatory term, mind you, just the trivia, the facts you know, the kind of things we want to learn so that we can dutifully pass a test. Others, you would think of a sermon as, well, okay, but give me the facts, but, but help me understand you know, the, 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 the meaning of those facts. Or grammar, we call in classical terms. The meaning of these facts, the way in which these facts... What do they mean exactly? Well, when we talk about his suffering, what it means that he went to the cross, he died to pay the penalty for our sins, blah, 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 blah. No, that's not blah, 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 blah. That's sacred stuff, of course, but, but it's just the meaning. Now, I want you to hear this, because this is typically what sermons looked like even in the medieval church. 
the trivium. Maybe a little bit on the meaning. Taking for granted what? That we all believe it's true. That we, we can assume, like as in one generation after another, that, that because it's in our soup and there's a large body of people who believe it, that therefore it's true. The word here goes beyond those two words, trivium and grammar. It's clearly, and you can see it in all the lexicons and anyone that's looking at this word semantically, it's clearly a rhetorical meaning, which is to argue, to defend, to make a case for. That, that's the sermon that, that speaks into the conscience as to why you must and ought to believe this. You see, it's, it's more than a head exercise facts, it's more than a thinking about the facts exercise in terms of their meaning. It gets to the affections or the, or the conscience of the heart. You, you may think I'm just parsing tiny things here, but this is exactly what I fear is getting lost in our church, in our culture, especially in a context where it's Christendom informed. It's amazing how when we uh, engage as a Mission Anabano collaborative, many of our guys have come from Christendom, as I have. And it's amazing how the truths of Scripture change when we start to breathe a context and a culture around us that just doesn't assume these are true. Or that just doesn't assume these things are reasonable. But the great mistake of even Christendom, even if you live in a culture that kind of it's, it's a hegemonic principle in culture, that is, culture that, that kind of has this, this authority that is informed by Christianity of what is right and wrong, the great mistake is to assume that people privately are, are bound in their conscience by it. That people privately and secretly aren't cynical and, and skeptical and yeah, so what kind of thing. It's incredibly, incredibly dangerous for any one generation to pass down the trivium and the, and the grammar, the facts and the meaning, and think that our children are convinced in their heart of it. Every child that's born into this church, a covenant child, will learn the trivium before they can hardly walk. What is God, children? God is a spirit. And off we go. Every child, before they get through the grammar age of Sunday school in this church, will understand that Jesus died, fact, and that he, meaning, died for our sins. And might know a little bit more about what it means that he died for our sins. But we presume much to think that that child believes it believes it in a manner that's going to then change the course of his own personal or her own personal history. A conviction that produces courage. A conviction that produces a faith that then hungers and thirsts for the word of God as their only rule of faith and practice. See, Christum takes all this for granted. They put it on a shelf. 
They raise their children to be dutiful Christians that can pass the little hypothetical exam in Sunday school class. And they think they've raised their children to the faith. They haven't. At the heart of a sermon, at the heart of Sola Scriptura, is this burden that is adopted that I must reason this to your heart. That it must be something that that engages your sense of convictions. And so it says that they argued to speak something in a rhetorical manner, says the lexicon, to argue for, to make a case. And this is the word that's often translated just with the word, and Paul spoke persuasively to the people, Acts 27. This is the word that you hear Herod use when it says, and he argued, or he spoke to the people. And notice the description that follows this. He explained it to them. Explained it. The the kind of sermon that makes you want to have a discussion about it afterwards. The kind of sermon that that we need to to talk about this. I'm not sure. It's, It's not I need to understand it better. I'm not really convinced that this is as big a deal as you're saying it is, Paul. Kind of a conversation. Tell me why this is a big deal. Tell me why you're asking me to stand opposed to all of my friends and go to church on Sunday when I might be missing a baseball game where I'm the star pitcher. Or why I should spend time in Scripture when I have a final exam tomorrow. We think that we've raised our kids. Or that we're changing our culture if we dutifully give them the facts. They explained it. Explained why it is so, in other words. And then notice this language. And supporting it with evidence. Not temporal, evidentialist sort of kind of evidence. Yes, they spoke of the resurrection, the evidence of that to those who were witnesses of it, like Paul and the apostles. But they reasoned. That's where the scripture comes in. With evidences. That what we teach you is what has always been taught by God in supernatural and miraculous deeds of history explained in the giving of the Word of God in a consistent manner, setting precedence for future revelations that we could trust and believe in. It's the model of Jesus on the Emmaus Road, how it is that he showed from the Scripture who he was and why he died, and therefore as the disciple, as the Messiah. Well, there are two reactions. Some, we're told in verse 4, were persuaded and joined Paul. Others, we're told, the Jews were jealous, which is interesting because it challenged their authority. It challenged their popularity. They had gotten in good, you see, with Rome, and they had gotten in good with their establishment. Christendom was good to those who were in the power of Christendom. And it challenged all the power, privilege, prestige, that comes with populist religion, however, whatever form it comes in. It challenged it. You see, the real issue, this personal offense that they took, was that it was lordship. It's interesting here. That's what happens in the language here. And acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. That is an amazing argument. Don't you know, Paul, that you're preaching against Caesar here? (gasps) Says Paul, right? God, please forgive me. No, Paul says, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. 
you see it gets to the ultimate authority and the fear of the Lord. When we go to Berea, it's described the reception is embellished that is noble. It's interesting he describes it. They, the Bereans, received the word with all eagerness. And he calls this a more noble. That is, he's, com- he's, he's commending the Bereans for our memory to remember the Berean way. Language that would come through in the reformational context even. For they received the word not with, scas- not with this sense of, of resisting it, not impatience with it, not give it to me quick, Paul. Put it in three steps. Let me pass the trivium test, Paul. No. They received it with eagerness. They welcomed it, readily receiving the information and readily examining it in their own way. They delighted in it, in the words of Psalms 119. Delighting in the Scripture. And how do we know that? It says, secondly, that they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Hear where we are now? They weren't examining so they could pass a test. They weren't examining so they could just tell me a practical thing from this that makes me go out and do something different. They wanted to, they, they engaged the burden of asking the question, why? Why should I believe this? These are people who know and are taking it seriously because they know that it's, it's a kind of belief, this belief in God, that if it's true, changes everything. They better take it slow. They better take it carefully. They're hungry. There's nothing in their day that is more important than this. Examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. You see, some people think of the word confessionalism, if you're familiar. If you're not, just, just ignore what I'm about to say. But if you're familiar with the word confessionalism, some people think, especially from Christendom, that what that means is a church pushing dogma on me, and therefore it's really about the church and its authority. But if you understand true confessionalism, it's the process of forming confessions, personal and corporate confessions by going to the Scripture. Sure, we read the Scripture with a community of faith, but we read the Scripture with this community of faith not in order to to bow to custom and tradition, but rather reading it with our mothers and fathers who themselves had entered into Sola Scriptura, who discovered what they believed the Scriptures principally teach and passed that down for us so that we might be informed by their discovery, but not in order to preempt our own self-discovery, but to guide us as we do discover from the Scriptures. And notice finally that the response was solidarity with those who suffer their confessions. What the Bereans show is when they discovered this, then yet again we see that courage emerge. The courage of John Wycliffe, the judge of the 16th century reformers, And not only was that courage demonstrated in their own willingness to suffer, it's interesting here, if you remember the passage, that they went after, uh, when they couldn't find the apostles, they went after those who housed the apostles, Jason and his family. You heard it in the scripture, read. And they were willing to do that. But here they were also willing to protect Paul and the apostles. Oh, it would have been so easy for them to have said, Paul? I don't know. I heard he was around. I don't know who this guy is. But when they were informed by Sola Scriptura that they had this conviction that there's a God 
and that he's the most dangerous being in the world, more dangerous than the threat of taking away my money, my power, and my culture, my prestige in my culture, that the most dangerous thing in the world is God, the fear of the Lord, as we talked about two weeks ago, and that we can know this God and Holy Scripture? Shh! And you have feared nothing. There was nothing to fear. Save God, and hey, good news. God is good. He's merciful. He's kind. He's gracious. And so this corporate solidarity with others who suffered says they immediately, secretly, sent Paul off on his way as they themselves took the persecution of the authorities. All of this is known by what is called the Berean Way. To be sure, there's convictions that under that undergird this. I wished I had the time to walk through each of those convictions. Things like the conviction of divine inspiration. Convictions like the infallibility of the Word of God. Convictions like the reliability of our canon. What we call the Holy Scripture. Is it reliable as the Scripture? Convictions about clarity. Is it even accessible? Convictions about its sufficiency. Really? Is it enough? Is it enough to govern me and to make me wise unto this world? The way the Proverbs said, as we heard read today? And of course, the conviction about its being the only rule of faith and authority. Every one of these things are doctrines that we need to learn. We study them a lot here in this church through our confessional theology class. And yes, every one of those doctrines need to be proven to you if you want to go beyond the trivium, if you want to go beyond the grammar, you need to ask why. You need to say, Pastor, show me, convince me. Do your homework, man. Don't just tell me what to believe because it's you telling me. That's what needs to happen when soul scripture takes root in our hearts. And when it does, oh, when it does, well, it results in things like a different expectation in sermons. It results in a different response to those sermons than a casual go home. How'd you like the sermon? Well, I liked it. He got done in 40 minutes today. I don't know. It, it's, it's a different way of thinking about our daily life with Scripture. Wanting more time, not less, to study it. But most of all, It's a different way of doing Christianity with courage. Finally, and I close with this, one of the great influences of John Wycliffe was another John Huss. About 100 years later, he read Wycliffe and was converted by his writings. Writings about Scripture, writings about how the Scripture had informed against the establishment, ceremonialism, and all this other stuff that had come with it how he discovered a simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're saved by grace through faith alone, by grace alone, etc. And this is a man that I know God used in a little, little biography that I read that to, called me to ministry. A man who was willing to suffer for it, who died at the stake for it, who, as myth would have it, calculated carefully, does he really believe this enough to burn, to sizzle, 
In order to calculate it, he, fe- he feared he had not spent enough time calculating it. And so on the night before he was martyred, we're told, myth, I don't know, but we're told that he had a candle and he put his hand over the candle and he sizzled his hand, saying, God, do I really believe this? The next day, what isn't myth, which is unanimously witnessed, is he sang the Psalms with joy as his body sizzled over the coals of a hot and raging fire. Put your mind on that for a minute. Sola Scriptura. It's a spirituality. It's not just a conviction. It's one that would take us to this cross and to this suffering every time. I really ask us, don't take it for granted. If you're a Christian, don't assume that it's really scripta, scripta, a solo scriptura in your heart yet. And if you're not a believer, good news. Ask, push, reason, examine. See if it's true. Amen.